0: Hey, folks, welcome back to the Climbing Business Journal podcast. I'm Holly Chen. I'm a contributing writer at the CBJ, and I'll be your host in today's episode with the Climbing Business Journal podcast. We hope to empower and inspire professionals in the climbing industry. Today's guests are Foxman McCarthy James and Justin Wright. Foxman is the head setter at Alta Climbing and Fitness and Alta Boulders in Arizona, while Justin is the director of route setting at Edgeworth Climbing and Fitness in Washington. Between the two, they have over 25 years of setting experience and even more climbing experience. Together, they also co-founded Vortex Route Setting, a company that provides setter development and training, competition management, and consultations. In today's wide-ranging conversation, Fox, Justin, and I talk about the rise in demand for route-setting consultations, the bottlenecks of route-setting education, and the numbers behind the scenes of the industry, from pay to workload to center professional development. Justin and Fox offer their expertise and insight, demonstrating how all of those trends are more interlinked than we can imagine. Before we start our show, a word from our sponsors. Strati Climbing installs and refurbishes incredible landing surfaces for climbing gyms, rec centers, schools, and home walls. Since all floors wear down over time, Strati often works with facilities to resurface old landing areas, extending the life to save money and avoid the landfill. Family owned and operated, the team at Strati has been installing padded floors for over a decade. Learn more at straticlimbing.com. Trango has designed innovative gear since 1991 for every kind of climbing, including sport, trad, bouldering, alpine, ice and mountaineering. They make everything a climber needs. For climbing walls, Trango Holds have been staples worldwide for over 20 years, and their rock prodigy is one of the planet's most popular hangboards. They also distribute Tenaya shoes in North America. Learn more at Trango.com. Thanks for joining me this evening. Uh, Foxman and Justin, I'm really excited to have you both here tonight because I really wanted to explore a topic that's been gaining traction in the last recent few years about setting companies. They really caught my interest because when I started setting, I've never heard of such a thing. And now I can name three or four just off the top of my head. And if you are a setter or someone in the industry, you probably heard of a few as well. Um, Fox and Justin run such a company. So I'm wondering if you guys can tell us what a route setting company is and what kind of services that kind of company might offer.
1: Gotcha, Holly. Yeah, thanks. Um, so there are a lot of different types of route setting companies out there, but most of us provide some type of service such as... Root setting, putting together hold orders, or consulting for those things. Um, I think our company is unique in the fact that we also are part of a bigger data collection project, looking at industry practices for root setting departments kind of nationwide. Um, but again, most companies are going to offer some combination of consulting services, root setting for comps,
0: organizing teams, and
1: just general consulting.
0: So why have you guys decided to start um, your company and what is it called?
2: So uh, Fox and I kind of had this sort of, it sort of happened where we we didn't really think about starting a company. We started having a lot of conversations with other route setters. We would travel all over the country to do events, whether it be comps or uh, other things like setter showdowns, things like that. Um, And when you get a bunch of route setters in a room, they tend to ask a whole bunch of questions about what they're doing it, you know, how much do you make or where do you work or how many routes do you have to set in a day, all of these types of things. And at one point we just started writing it all down. Um, and cause we were like, Oh, well, if everyone's asking the same questions, like there's clearly a need for this information. And so we started to track it. And then as we got more data and more data, we started to realize like, wow, we have quite a lot of this, um, and that's sort of what fueled the project to kind of move forward. We ended up presenting at the CWA in 2022 um, on just like a whole bunch of things, salaries, workloads, uh, safety practices, um, a few more things. Right. And and now we kind of are ongoing with that process to kind of keep current. Uh, and one of the major things that we're doing, uh, in addition to the other things that Fox mentioned consulting wise, is meeting with route setters and or owners to help both advocate for route setters, but also help um, owners and managers and things like that kind of retain people um, by just having an understanding of like what, how to be competitive in a region or something like that. Mm
0: -hmm. Um, That's a really good point. And my, my question is that commercial gyms, at least the, the gyms that we know now, have probably been around since, what, like the 90s or so. Obviously, we've modernized quite a bit. But why are we seeing this um, kind of uh, small explosion of these companies coming onto the scene in the last couple of years or, I don't know, maybe half a decade? Um, what has changed about the industry that's kind of creating this demand for the services that you guys and many other companies offer?
2: I feel like there's a there's been an explosion of gyms. Uh, there's potentially more gyms opening than route setters that are being created, uh, paired with this issue where route setters decide at some point in their career that route setting is no longer sustainable, or maybe isn't financially viable, or maybe they're getting too old and they're tired of pulling hard, or you know whatever the reason is, and so they're dropping off. And so it's creating this void. It's like a supply and demand issue, I see. Yeah,
1: that's exactly what I was going to say, Justin. Having kind of an aging experienced setter population in combination with this plethora of new gyms that are opening very quickly and a lot of times without a, a clear plan of how they're going to open. And so if your gym is going to be opening in all of a sudden four months and you don't have a setting team hired. You need to call in some sort of group of people in order to get your gym set. And we've got a lot of experience, like experienced root setters who are moving into more of a consulting role who are able to fill that void.
0: Mm hmm. Justin, you mentioned that, you know, experienced veteran root setters are leaving this industry, and that's something that I've witnessed uh, myself, like even in just my region, I personally know three head setters who have left the industry for other professions and throughout the country. I know many, many more. Um, why do you think that we are experiencing this kind of exodus of experienced root setters?
2: I think there's a couple of reasons. Um... I think that, I mean, the way I would define route setting is sort of like a uh, skilled manual labor plus athlete, right? And uh, the athlete part is a very taxing part. Uh, Not everyone can sustain that for a really long time. Um, There's also this like wage conversation that's happening. Climbing gyms in general aren't like, the industry is still in in its infancy and there isn't like a whole ton of money especially when you compare it to some other fields that are like booming right now, like tech or something like that, where it's like, you have a decision, you could like work hard and do what you love and you can kind of stay in it because you have this passion or you could want to have the capacity to buy a house or whatever. And, you know, you say, Oh, well, like I could just learn how to code and make six figures easily. Um, or maybe not easily, but like I think we're seeing a lot of that kind mm-hmm. of stuff where it's like, oh, well, I'm going to use the degree I got or whatever. Or or in some cases, even even some of the middle level experienced route setters, uh, I've had a few, few people leave just because they can like work at a... Like if they could flip burgers for $25 an hour, right? It's like there's a compare and contrast situation. It's like, well, I could do this thing that like is borderline mindless. Um, maybe I smell like cheeseburgers, but like I can make just as much, if not in some cases, more than what I was doing at like working at height um, in this sort of like skilled manual labor athlete realm.
0: Do you think this is going to, and I'm sure you have a lot more insight on this based on the data you, you guys have been collecting. Um, do you think that this is this exodus of experience or middle experience, et cetera, leaving an industry is going to create any problems in the long run, like the industry as a whole?
1: I think one thing that we're already seeing kind of like you alluded to Holly and the Justin talked to um is like headsetters who are leaving. I know in my region there are a bunch of headsetters who they might still be interested in um being part of the climbing industry even in route setting but have no desire to be running programs or um any sort of management and I think that's a combination of well, largely that wage issue that Justin's talking to if we can do something mindless um, for $25 an hour, and then pursue the thing that we love climbing on our own time, then you start to draw that super experienced crowd away from those mentorship roles. They're not being compensated in a way that like supports growth in the industry for the newer generations. So people are looking for education anywhere they can get it. And people are exiting in the most experienced roles.
0: Huh. That brings up a good point. Um, I want to kind of talk about education since you brought it up. Like every novice route can tell you how difficult it is to break into this career. Like your average entry-level job in any other more traditional career path probably has like, you know, a set of educational uh, qualifications. Like maybe you need a high school degree or a college degree, but in setting, there is no basic educational qualifications to go by. And It becomes a classic catch-22 because you need to be an educated or an experienced route-setter to get hired. But in order to get that route-setting education, you first need a job. So part of this conflict undoubtedly arises from, you know, a lack of standardization, um, maybe something like a trade school. In your opinion, is route-setting a trade and can we have a trade school?
2: I think that's a really interesting question, Holly. Um, I think that there are definitely people in the industry who um, are trying to work towards the solution in in that realm. I would one hundred percent define route setting as a trade. Um, you know, similar to being able to go to school like vocationally for any sort of industry. I feel like route setting could follow suit. I think the big difference, if we were to do a compare and contrast between someone like a plumber um, and a route setter is just like how many plumbers there are jobs for versus how many route setters there are jobs for. And so I don't think we've hit that critical mass where there's like, people are chomping at the bit to like create a, a tech school for route setting. But I think there are certain people within the industry, I know the CWA is working really hard to Uh, create a standardized sort of certification program um, or an educational track for route setters. Um, Foxman and I, along with a bunch of really talented humans, uh, are on the route setting committee for the CWA and we're in the process of building such a thing. Um, And we have a long way to go, but we're starting. And there may be other people who are also working uh, to try to do similar things. Uh, And so I would not be surprised if there was some materialization of some formalized route setting certification program or, or school or wh- whatever you want to call it in the future?
1: Yeah, specifically for kind of like that professional track of setters outside of competition setting. Obviously, USA Climbing has their certification levels, but that's kind of really the only standard right now. Um, and there's, there are a lot of bottlenecks along that track, and it doesn't necessarily speak to somebody's capacity for setting in a commercial gym or making a career out of root setting. It really speaks to your ability to set for youth competitions. And so getting more entries into standard ed- uh, education, I think, is only going to
2: make the industry stronger.
0: That's a great I'll add to point. That
2: to Sorry, Holly. Um, uh, I agree with Fox, w- with the USAC thing. I mean, I think that there's a lot of value in having the formalized competition track training. Um, I kind of see a need uh, for something to run tandem with it, to, to, to sort of teach um, the work at height standards and the other things, uh, you know, rather than how to set for a specific subset of athlete but more so, like, you know, how do we backtrack? And I've I've talked to many gym owners who question the value of the USAC certification um, because they're like, well, if I'm not hosting events in my gym, why should I care about it? And I think the answer, and I think Louis just did an article on the CBJ about this, is that it is valuable because it is professional development. There's a lot of associated skills that can be translated to commercial route setting. But there are some gaps, and I'd like to see those gaps filled.
0: Justin, you brought up a good point earlier about not having that, like, critical mass that's enough to really have, like, a trade school, like an electrician or a plumber that, you know, every neighborhood needs. Um, And as much as climbing is becoming more and more mainstream, we are still technically a niche sort of sport. Um, And, I sometimes question this. Like, Say a average crew has between four to six setters and the whole of the U.S. has, what, 600-plus gyms. That's not a whole lot of setters. Um, so I personally see that, like you mentioned, critical mass as a part of the bottleneck to getting a wider standardized system like a trade school. Um, what other bottlenecks are you seeing to kind of, either delay or prevent this process from reaching what we as setters and head setters want it to be.
2: All right. There's a few things I want to add to that. Um, Go I think the the first thing I want to say is like kind of almost like summarizing the entirety of the problem, or at least as I see it, is there's this route setter supply and demand, plus there's this narrow formal education and then you include sort of the wage and benefit challenges that uh, are sort of pulling people out of the industry. And all of those things sort of translate to people leaving the industry um, and therefore the need for all of this experienced route setting consultancy. Um, so it's it's kind of creating a circle. And I think where we're going to see that circle break is when we can uh, find a way to formalize some sort of education where we can find a way to, uh, attract more people, uh, so that we have like a diversity in, uh, route setting crews and people who feel like this is something they want to actually commit a career to versus like, I'm just going to do this while I'm in college. And then I'm going to X. Um, and I think there's a lot of work to be done to get from where we are to where we want to be.
1: Well, and You know, as we're talking, I'm just kind of like pinging this around in my brain, but I suspect that some of that critical mass may actually come from gyms as they are expanding, as more and more root setters start like hitting the workforce, and as more gyms open to the public, I think the need for qualified professionals might become apparent through liability issues. So, if you have people that are not properly educated or trained and you have a bunch of new gyms opening up with a bunch of new climbers coming in, there may be a gap in education that leads to liability issues and might ping that onto gym's radar as a a need to get their setters trained and create even more of a demand for some sort of standardization educational process.
0: When you talk about liability issues, are you talking about, um, you know, potentially hazardous situations for the clientele or for the setters themselves?
1: I think either would be an issue if you have setters who aren't properly trained in how to attach things to a wall, or if you don't have rescue scenarios ready for setters who are working at height. I think either would be an issue. And right now, like you said, Holly, it is a very niche market, Um. And I think that making sure that the education is keeping track to make sure that everybody is properly trained is going to be really important as the industry grows.
0: So let's say you were a headsetter or a director of setting or someone in a leadership position. Um, What can you do now as the industry is kind of developing and blossoming um, to minimize some of these problems in your home local gyms? I mean, I
1: think the, the easiest answer, which is like, I don't know, feels too easy, is just invest in Root Setter education and professional development. So being willing to spend time and money to send Root Setters to available clinics and trainings, CWA clinics if they're available, USAC clinics if they're available, um, work at height clinics, getting your Setters certified here. If you've got a boom lift, getting your Setters certified to operate that boom lift. Um, You know, that's, that's a very easy answer is just investing in that. Um, and then there's a whole nother side of that, which is figuring out how to hire the right people for that position to begin with. So I'll let Justin take that one.
2: Sure. Well, so, I mean, I'm happy to field that, but I also kind of, while you were talking Fox, I, I kind of thought a few things as well. Um, the thing that comes to mind is, uh, there, there are, there is a big difference between. You know, at least within this country, there's a big difference between sort of like your big chain gyms that have emerged versus your sort of like small, like small scale operations, whether it's a mom and pop with like a, a single location or it's like someone who has two locations, right? There's like a polarizingly different operational uh, difference between someone with 25 gyms versus like the one or two. And I think that right now the onus for routes training and sort of like this understanding of liability and all that stuff is Singularly on the facilities themselves, um, and the gyms that are uh, more developed might have more robust tools to be able to like hire and train. And I think we've seen a lot of route setters like flocking to sort of these larger scale um, for many reasons that you know pay and benefits is going to be one of them. Like just the scale and size of, and caliber of the programs is uh, a little bit more bolstered. Um, and what it's doing is sort of creating this like deficit, especially at that sort of like single gym, smaller scale operation level. Um, and you know, where, where is the infrastructure for how to train the route setters for those programs? Um, and and that's the question that I see. It's like where where does that put us?
1: Well, and um, adding on to that, that's kind of where those root setting companies can come in. So if you can bring in a smaller company to provide a clinic for your root setters, provide professional development for your root setters, it might be more manageable than sending your entire team out to you know whatever USAC clinic is available. Maybe because only a couple of your root setters will be able to get into it. So that might be that tie back to root setting consulting companies.
0: So if we take the, you know, vast amounts of, maybe not vast, but a a decent amount of head setters and experienced root setters uh, leaving the industry, um, and we look at the current state of setting education, are we looking at potentially a very, very, you know, big section or selection of route-setting knowledge just disappearing with the people who leave the industry and not stay to pass it on? And I'm not, I am <laughs> not know how
2: to answer that. That's
0: a really good question, Holly. <laughs> like, I mean, I, I think about, you know, a lot of route-setting knowledge is passed down orally. Like, um, I recently was reading about how um, oral histories can sometimes uh, feel less, uh, official because it's not written down. Um, but in our case, as a root setting industry, um, evolves into what it is and what it can become one day. These people with all of that knowledge who have no intention of writing it down are not there to pass it on anymore. So what do you think, is that going to create a trend or a shift in terms of how we approach sitting? Um like for example, certain old school ethics and old school styles have probably started to go out of style. Uh, we can see this with, um, say, the kind of larger and larger selection of holds being one of these trends. The baseball, the football side holds are definitely disappearing, um, and that's just one of the the trends that's emerging with as the industry changes. So, what do you guys think on like the the knowledge that we might be losing? And how might we keep it or kind of keep it in the community as we progress as an industry?
2: The thing that comes to mind, Holly, when you ask that is, you know, to me, it ties back to facilities rather than individuals. Um, I think that um, there's like an intellectual property kind of component to developing a route setting program at a company. And I think whether it's, you know, a formalized document or whether it's just like generations of of training and, and process. Um uh, I think the, there's a conversation about, you know, is is this something that we share with the world or is this something that's ours? Um, and I think because of that sort of um institutional knowledge that's sort of like contained within the organizations that it is built in. Um it, it just sort of means one of two things. It means in order to get that proper education, you need to go there or there needs to be some other entity that creates something that is for everyone. And I think that to me ties back to at least what the CWA is looking to achieve with them publishing their route setting guide recently and you know, the work at height standards that have come out um, and the continued efforts to kind of do that kind of thing where it's like the goal is, at least in the bottom levels to try to like create accessibility for this education, um, and then build a platform so that more people can enter and move through the funnel. Um, and it's sort of, I, I, kind of draw an analogy to the, like the whole idea of gym to Crag, where it's like, is it the gym's responsibility to teach the stewardship to get outside? It's like the same idea. It's like with route setters, right? Is it the gym's responsibility to teach the route setters or, Is it some other entity, uh, like the access fund or something like that, or, or to, to sort of teach all of this education.
1: Yeah. To build off what Justin was saying, I think that the work that for instance, the CWA has been doing in documenting best practices is really focused on kind of like, uh, hard skills of, you know, what is the best way to manage your work at height program When it comes to the more creative skills or the soft skills, part of me wonders, whenever I see a newer root setter, like quote unquote, discover a new move, like they're so hyped. And I'm like, I've seen that like so many times. So I don't know that I would want to like codify that in a way that like, well, this is how you set this movement because that act of discovery is one part of what brings joy. And two, allows us to push that movement further and further and further. To me, the most important part of the education is just kind of those, those fundamentals of like, here's how you attach this to the wall. Here's how you carry things up. Here is a way to like behave professionally and less, you know, this is how, you, this is what is good root setting because what is good root setting? it, It's completely situational. It's going to vary facility to facility. And I don't know that there is a way to capture the generations of knowledge that come before us and pass it on to the future in a way that still inspires the creative growth that at least I'm looking for.
2: I think that's especially true when you start talking about all the trends that you were mentioning, Holly. Right? It's like what route setting was, you know, a decade ago uh, versus what it is now, just with the availability of shape, like the size of shapes. you know, access to volumes, fiberglass, the the difference between setting on a concrete wall versus on a wooden wall. Like there just are discernible differences that, um, you kind of have to adapt to over time.
1: And I think that the trends push back and forth too. Like I've been lucky enough to work with a very old school setter recently whose style is exactly what Like my team and my gym needed in that moment where if we're bringing this hyper modern macros and like big creative movements to our community, where are the big moves on small edges? Like we need to have everything. Um, The trends come and go. And I think the foundations are going to be the really important thing, the safety Professionalism. If we're looking to be treated as professionals by our gyms and by our communities, those are the things that I think are non negotiable.
0: I think that's a great point. Um, That actually makes me think of this. You know, we've always heard, you know, people say that route setting is an art. Um, But often I actually think that route setting is like design, it's not an art it is in a way because you're using many, many creative elements, but when you're hired to design something, there's generally a set of parameters, right? I want you to design me a chair with, you know, a pocket on the side for magazines. And if you get that assignment and you hand your client a giant couch, that's obviously a fail. So in root setting, it's the same thing, right? If you ask to set a comp boulder with a paddle move and you give them a crimp ladder, that's not going to work. Um, so... And when you talked about not actually codifying these elements of art and design blended uh, blended together, I think it actually might even open up more doors for more trends that we might not even foresee now to emerge into the industry. And obviously some are going to make us raise our eyebrows and some are going to make us go like, wow, how come I didn't think of that? Right? No, absolutely. I think the movement is always going to be evolving
1: and and we're going to see returns to things. And again, that movement that somebody's super psyched on because they invented it. Like, of course not. Of course not. There's nothing new in this world. Um, (laughs) Steal like an artist, right? Yeah, but we're, we're, we're pushing. And, you know, if we feel like we found something that's new even to us, I think that's what keeps the cycle alive. Mm -hmm.
0: And to your you know, gym climber, a lot of people are discovering mood for the first time. Like I, I watched a recreational climber discover what a rose move was. And, you know, I've said it 10,000 different times, but that was the first time she climbed it. And she looked like she had the best time of her life. And that's part of what I love about this career is that creating that first moment for people and then helping them understand that, Hey, this is a pattern, recognize it. And then you're going to see it a lot more and you're going to get better at it every time you do it. right? I have to chuckle. That was the first move that that Justin
1: challenged me to set. The rose move. Oh, that's awesome! I was like, "What?" <laughs> Sorry, what? <laughs> you did oh, it, Oh man, <laughs> um, mixed results. You were there's heavy editing going on, as there should have been.
0: That's okay. Yeah, like that's that's all of our first boulders. I mean, if I looked at my first boulder now, I'd probably like gag a little bit. But you know, I'm not going to think about that. <laughs> Um I kind of want to switch gears because I want to ask you guys about one thing that you mentioned earlier. You guys mentioned like you guys have been collecting a lot of data. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what numbers you guys are collecting?
2: So over the last you know, maybe three or four years, we've been collecting data. We probably have information on maybe oh, maybe a little bit over a hundred gyms. Um, and we're constantly updating it because, you know, if, if the last couple of years has shown us nothing or the, even the last six months, right. It's like inflation has changed pay rates consistently um, or considerably rather. Um, and so we are looking at what route setters are making, um, trying to do some analyzing there. We're looking at what expectations uh, gyms have on their teams, um, specifically in like output, information. So it's like how many boulders are you asked to do in a day? Um, and similarly for ropes, although we quantify that by how many feet you set, just because different people have different heights for rope walls. Um, and it's an easier way to track. Um, and then there's a, a few other things that we look at, uh, that are less sort of asked for, um, you know, things about risk management policies of like, whether they're, what PPE they're using, whether if it's a rope gym, are they using, uh, the two rope system. And what's really cool is we can, we've had, we've gotten enough aggregate data where we were able to report on it. <clears throat> so, like I said, uh, I think earlier in the, the chat, we presented this at the 2022, um, summit and it's, our, our presentation is actually available on our website, text roots at the root dot ro- Um, so people can go and download the slides and look at it and What we want to do is like, we want to avail this information to as many people as possible and like, um, start having conversations, um, because like, that's how it helps. And I know Fox, you can speak more to that specific side.
1: Yeah. So just to throw like a little more context in there, like Justin kind of went through, um, like kind of like those, those key pieces of data that everybody wants to know, which is like what are you getting paid? How many boulders are you setting per day? How many rope routes are you setting? And we're also collecting that all within the context of how, how many linear square feet is your gym? How tall are your walls? Like getting a good picture of what the gym itself looks like, because obviously gyms across the country vary wildly. We don't want to be comparing apples to oranges. Like if you've got like a single family owned, I don't know, a 10,000 square foot bouldering facility, we don't want to compare that to a 40,000 square foot rope facility. It makes no sense. We're looking at the size of teams. We're looking at the annual attrition rates of teams, just trying to get as big of a picture as possible so that when we have conversations with owners or individual root setters, we're able to look at comparable gyms um, and provide them with a good sense of like, if you're an ownership team or a management team, what should you be providing to your root setters in order to be competitive? Um, Down to like, are you providing tools for your gyms? Like uh, for a lot of gyms, that seems like a given, like, yeah, my gym provides my drill, but for some gyms, it's not. Um, And then for root setters, like, if you're in this area working for this type of gym, What is an average pay rate that you can be asking for? What's reasonable? Um, What are your benefits looking like? So getting as much information in as reasonable uh, a context as possible, because again, there is such a broad span of different types of gems out there.
2: And one one of the ways that we've been able to be so successful in collecting this data is by making sure it's always available to the route setters that are contributing it. Um, and the majority of the conversations we've had are with route setters, although we do talk to managers and other thing, other people in various positions. Um, and sort of one of the ways that we make sure also that people are comfortable sharing the information is that we won't share the specifics with other people. Like there is a layer of anon- anonymity that we want to maintain just so they don't think that we're going to just like go and put put what they're saying on blast or something like that.
0: Yeah, exactly. So now, so now that you guys have been collecting this data for you said three years, right? Um, what does the big picture tell you? Like, what does that data tell you about the industry? Is there any takeaways that you want to share with our audience?
2: Um, I think the there's a few areas that uh, there you know, if we my thought would be there's room for growth. Uh, I think I was a little surprised um, how many gyms are not requiring certain layers of PPE, um, how many gyms aren't providing their tools to their route setting staff. Um, you know, small things that if, if you work for um, a larger gym operation and, and have all of these things available to you, you, you might sort of expect it. Um, but that's not necessarily always the case. Um, and so I, th- I don't necessarily think that anyone's doing this um, on purpose or because they know they should and they're choosing not to. I think that there's like a an education. Um, and I think part of this data collection is to help shed light on these things. Um, and like, I know Fox and I would welcome a conversation when we when we sat down at that presentation um, we had owners and route setters coming up to us asking us questions about like what what trends are here, what trends are there, and they all came to us with like a genuine uh like a genuine wanting to be better and just try to understand and you don't know what you don't know, right and so like by availing this to people, we hope that we can increase that,
1: yeah, I think my my biggest takeaways were a lot of, a lot of root setters and a lot of gym owners in the last two years have assumed that they can focus their competition locally. Um, and what we've seen is a few different things, which is one, gyms are having to compete for root setters, especially experienced root setters on a national scale. So, when Justin and I are hiring for each of our gyms in different areas, we're often competing for the same pool of people. And so any gym that is trying to hire experienced root setters needs to be nationally competitive. Um, and similarly, that kind of location base doesn't translate to pay in the way that I expected, at least, so those hubs for climbing Are often not the leaders in um, wages and benefits and workloads, mostly because they've got so many climbers who are really interested in root setting. But that doesn't translate to experience. And so if you're cycling through new root setters because the psych is high every four months, six months, year, the cost to your company is going to be so much higher than if you can attract a talented candidate and retain them for five years, eight years, 10 years but the areas that have attractive climbing areas are able to cycle through people faster i guess i don't think it's better whereas areas that don't have the you know world class climbing destinations within an hour of them are tending to pay better because they have to attract talent from outside that doesn't get the same sort of climbing locally
0: uh, that was a lot but. wait so you sh- No, 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 no. I actually think that's amazing insight because that's something that I personally did not know. Um, and I bet you anything, a lot of our audience don't either. So I'm hoping that this is something new. Um, wait, so essentially you're saying that for a gym, it might be more cost effective to shell out the, I don't know, big bucks to hire the more experienced setter that might stay for the long term versus trying to train a new setter. Definitely. I mean, the way that I
1: think about a lot of, um, The roles within the gym where I'm head setter is how much effort is the rest of the team needing to put into mentoring a setter? Um, So if somebody comes in and they're able to, one, put up their work efficiently, quality work, and then they still have the bandwidth left to mentor somebody else, then that's value that they're bringing to our root setting team. But if I need to train up a new root setter, then that's resources that the team is then having to put into that person. So it becomes a deficit. It's an investment, right? And if we're investing into that person, we want for them to be able to stay around and then kind of like put that return on the investment that the gym has put into them. If we're not paying them well Mm -hmm. enough, they're going to move on to greener pastures where they're able to earn a living. And so all of that investment that a gym has put into a newer root setter, it's probably just going to go elsewhere.
0: Hmm. That's a great point. Um, and with all of the the stuff and the data that you guys have collected and all of the insight that you guys know now, what is something or what are things that you still hope to find out in the coming years?
1: I think right now, we're, our biggest focus is staying current and growing. We're starting to work with somebody who can help us make what has been kind of an inter, in-person interview-focused survey into a more scalable form that we can send out to people and people can fill it out as their information changes, if their pay scale changes, just to be able to get more responses and more up-to-date responses because the information is only as good as it is current.
2: I think I'll add, I'll add something there too, because I think in addition to sort of trying to avail that um, trying to create a form or, or some version of it. That's a little bit more accessible to, to reach a wider net. Um, I mean, maybe even by the time this podcast airs, uh, we'll have that concluded. I I know that we're working, uh, with the CBJ on an article about this separately to this podcast as well. Um, so we're hoping to like be able to canvas a, a wider group of people so that we can just be that much more accurate with this information. Um, But I think the goal, fast forward however long, uh, a month, two months, whatever we're looking at, um, would be that we have people who are willing to share. And then we have people who are also reaching out, asking us to help them with their unique situation. And, uh, you know, it makes both Fox and I's day when a route setter calls us or texts us saying like, hey, because of you and your data, I was able to get a raise or I was able to retain this person on my team um, because X, Y, or Z. And it's a similar situation. Like we don't necessarily only want to advocate for route setters. We want to advocate for owners and managers. And it's not all about pay. That's like the thing that the route setters tend to ask us about the most, but it's beyond that because we're looking at trying to keep people in the industry and make sure practices are safe. Um, And, you know, that initiative all of those questions we're asking it's like part of our consultancy is asking owners these hard questions and and just educating them on things they might just not know they need to know um and i think as humans oftentimes people um you know we are more reactive than proactive and so you know if it ain't broke don't fix it type mentality but then all of a sudden someone gets hurt And now we're looking at liability uh, or there's a pending lawsuit or something like that. And like, that's going to be way more expensive than if we just made the decision to switch to a two rope system or introduced introduced some sort of like PPE requirement or barriers or whatever. Like I used to, I mean, I remember the Wild West. I've been setting for almost 20 years and I've done some really dumb stuff. Nothing that I'm going to admit to on the air, but like we've come a long way. Um, but I still think that there's some places that, uh, kids could continue to like be educated on like what they want, best practices are. Um, and it's not necessarily Fox and I's job to discern what those best practices are, but we could certainly make recommendations just as much as like the CWA is putting forth their volunteer standards.
1: Well, and we can look and see what trends are as well. You know, so rather than like, this is the way to do it. It's like, this is what gyms are doing. This is what gyms that are retaining their setters are doing. You know, make your decisions. But if you want
0: to retain a talented team, this is what we recommend. Hmm. Do you guys have any case studies that you want to share on how this data has helped gym owners or managers or setters or anyone that's currently hoping to help the industry grow and become better? I
1: mean, we tend to keep things pretty confidential. Uh, We do a lot of work for, you know, various people who reach out to us for help with negotiations. And we've had some gyms reach out to us to figure out how they can make their setting teams the most robust they can be. But again, we keep everything confidential and anonymous. So, um, I can respect that.
0: That's awesome. (laughs) Yeah. We do have happy stories, but again, like, as long as they're happy stories, that's, that's the main point, right? Um, anyways, honestly, you guys have provided a ton of awesome insight. And seriously, I could talk to you all days, but I think we are nearing the um, end of our time. And I don't want to take up your whole night uh, to end. I'm wondering if you guys are looking forward to anything in particular in the coming years or so in the setting industry, a trend that you want to see explode or, um, a idea that you're seeing gain traction.
1: I'm super biased, but I'm really excited to see what happens with the uh, climbing wall association, some um, or climbing wall associations, uh, education track. Like, uh, I mean, obviously it have got a pony in the race there, but I am too. Yeah. But it's the start of a different sort of standardized educational track than what has existed before. So I'm excited to see how it develops. What about you,
2: Justin? I'd, be, I'd mirror what Fox said. I, uh, um, I think that what, I don't know if there's other people trying to do similar things. Um, and again, both Fox and I are on the team that's trying to create this for everyone. Um, so bias for sure but I'm really excited to see where it goes. Um, I think that it's been a long time coming and I, I, I just want there to be formal education for, for this craft, um, because I think without it, we're just, there's, there's a, a barrier of entry um, that is, is causing some of the like challenges where we can't keep or have enough people to do the jobs.
0: That's it, folks. Thanks for listening to today's episode with Foxman and Justin. Check us out next time. We'll be back with another episode and another guest soon. If you enjoyed what you heard, share this with a friend, tell a coworker, or give us a shout on social media. Thanks again. Until next time.